0: This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org UT. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. Welcome to RUF. My name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here. It's so good to see all of y'all, to be all together. Hope you had a great spring break. Uh, while we were seeing this song uh, that our music team was leading us in, uh, "And Can It Be," I was just thinking, like, how how well this sums up what we're trying to say every week in our UF. He left His Father's throne above so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free. For oh my God, it found out me. Um, We actually believe in RUF that all of us are helpless, like this song says, that there's nobody here who's figured out religion enough or who's a good enough Christian to not be utterly helpless. We believe all people, including the person standing on this stage tonight are helpless and in need of a Savior. But what we believe is that there's actually a true and real Savior who's come into this world. And it's the very person who made this world. And he's done it because he loves us, he loves you, and he's redeeming all things. And if that's true, it changes everything. And so every week we, at RUF, we consider whether or not this is true and if it is, what that means for us. We've kind of been looking at these fundamentals of following Jesus this semester. We started with talking about Scripture. Because if Scripture isn't true, then that kind of, that kind of ends the argument for Christianity. It's hard. We can't stand on much. If if, if scripture isn't true, if it's not trustworthy, if it doesn't speak into our life with some kind of authority. And so we looked at this question of scripture, but also after that, we've talked a lot about this idea of justification that the Bible talks about all throughout the pages of scripture. And we said over and over that justification is actually not how we are made right with God, as you may have heard preached to you before. But in fact, justification is how God makes us right with him. He's so invested in saving us that he does the work. That's justification. And that we get the righteousness of Christ, not because of what we've done, but by faith in him only and by his grace. And so, and then last last time we met, we we said one of the, the consequences of that, Daniel told us, is that we're adopted into God's family, that we actually become his children, that we become co-heirs of Jesus, that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to his children, to God's children. And Jesus is our older brother, and we're, we're adopted into this family. And so the question that maybe if you're a Christian or if you're considering Christianity that you need to ask yourself is, okay, after this all happens, I'll say I've become a Christian. I'm justified by grace through faith. I'm adopted into God's family. So like now what? What do I do? And by the way, like, I'm still jacked up and broken and struggling with stuff. I'm not, all of the problems in my life aren't fixed. And I'm still struggling with all kinds of sin patterns in my life. What do I do? How do I change? And that's what we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. How do we change? We're going to talk about it by looking at this big biblical teaching that's all throughout the pages of Scripture called sanctification. Sanctification, which answers this big question of how do we change? Let me read first uh, before we start talking about this topic. Let me read from Matthew 18, and then we'll begin. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, "Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?" And calling to him a little child, he put them he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Y'all, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever and they're given to us because he loves us and they're true. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for giving us your word and for giving us your word made flesh, Jesus. And we pray that now as we consider these words that he spoke so many years ago and that you have preserved for us and that we now hold in our very hands, that you would help us to understand more and more what it means to follow him and to know you. And we pray and ask all this in his name. Amen. So we are talking about change. It just so happens that the place that you are in, in your life, but even this very university, we love change. Right at UT, we believe what starts here changes the world. And all of you, many of you come here thinking about how, how am I going to change? How am I going to grow here? How am I going to become a world changer What are things that I didn't like about myself in high school that I want to change about my experience here in college? Or what do I want to do in college so that I can change the trajectory of my life moving forward? We love the idea and the thought of changing and growing. Maybe maybe you're coming out of spring break thinking like, I need to change. There's things about me that need to change. I need to change how much I've been partying or how much I've been drinking or I need to change my friends. Or I need to change and I need to find friends I was really lonely this spring break. Or I need, to change, I need to change my study habits and like get to it because it's about to be go time. I need to change. And we're, all, we're often thinking about change. And if you, look, if you begin to look at stuff that's produced all around us, the media that we take in and the things that we read, so much of it is promising change. That's why when you go to a bookstore, if those even exist anymore, or if you look on Amazon, like there's so much self-help books. They're everywhere. All these like secrets of how you can change and how you can change into having a better life or a more fulfilling life. There's podcasts and self-help gurus on social media that always make me feel like horrible about myself after like they talk for about thirty seconds. They're all beautiful and they all have it figured out and they're all rich. What? Uh, like we all are obsessed with this idea of change. My, my friend, Matt Howell, I heard him um, speaking about this and he, he used the example of songs. That there's so many songs about change. I never, I never thought about that. But when you begin to think about all these famous songs and songs that we love, so many of them are about change. One of the most famous ones, Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror. Starting with the Man in the Mirror... I'm asking him to change his ways. Someone got their words wrong. That was embarrassing. I'm glad you're wearing a mask. None of us know who it was. I'm asking him to change his ways. I want to change. All, there's So many musicians have written songs about change. Christina Aguilera wrote a song called Change. <laughs> Carrie Underwood, Change. Taylor Swift, Change. <laughs> Jack Johnson, Change. John Mayer, Changing. Mm. (laughs) Jennifer Hudson, I am changing. Rascal Flatts, changed. (laughs) Hilary Duff, metamorphosis. (laughs) Just think about that. Even Hilary Duff, songs about change. Everyone's talking about change. Everyone's singing about change. We care so much about change and about becoming something. But here's what I want you to consider tonight, is that the, the change that we might be aiming for, the thing that, that we think we need to change into, may not be what God wants for us. God does want a change for us, but it may, not, it may be different from the expectations that we have for the kind of changes that we want in our life. Uh, this is something that we do all the time. I remember when Christy and I got engaged, and it was her birthday, and it was like, okay, like... This is my fiance. Got to get her a good birthday present. Thought long and hard about it. And I remember that we had had this conversation this one time about how it's kind of funny that my last name was Trap and what if we had a bunch of kids and we like started a band. We call them like the Trap family singers and we all need to figure out new instruments. And Chrissy was like, I don't know any instruments. I was like, would you ever want to learn how to play an instrument? I like to play instruments. And she's like, I don't know. I thought about playing the mandolin one time. I was like, boom. Remember that she said that one time? One time. Once. She said it once. But I also love like i said musical instruments i was like i would love to have a mandolin just to, like play around with and mess with and have and learn and so of course i buy a mandolin for her for her birthday and i was so excited for her to open it she opened it up and she had zero reaction like i could tell she was trying to like sum up some kind of like happiness that she was that she got she was like what is this tiny guitar thing you bought me like i don't even want this But I got her something that I thought she wanted, but I I really wanted. It was really about me. The gift was about me. And oftentimes the thing that we think that we need or that we want may not, it may not align with what someone else wants. And I think that that's often true when we think about the change that we're after in our own lives versus what God wants for us. And we see that in this passage. To give you a little bit of context of this passage, um, this same story is written about in Mark chapter 9. Mark's written from Peter's perspective. Peter was a fisherman, not sure how educated he was. There was a guy named John Mark who was from an educated family who wrote the book of Mark. But most scholars believe that the book of Mark is written from the perspective of Peter. And if you look at it even, it's like really short, abrupt, choppy sentences, kind of uneducated. But you get like all these interesting little tidbits that someone like Peter would have known. And so this story about the disciples coming to Jesus and asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In Mark chapter 9, we we get to hear a little bit about the context of what happened before this question comes up. This This is what happens. And they came to Capernaum. So they had gone on a journey to this little village called Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So, you know, they're all walking together. Everyone's not in the same conversation. Maybe Jesus had a little bit of FOMO, wanted to know what they were talking about. What were you guys discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Just kind of a hilarious conversation that the disciples were having. They're on their way to Capernaum. They're just like, no, I'm better than you are. Remember when I cast that demon out of that guy? Well, well, did you see me when I shared the gospel with that one person? You know, they're, they're just having this argument about who is the best disciple. And by the way, this isn't the only time that they have this argument. They're discussing about this all the time. They're always scheming on each other. They're always coming up to Jesus and asking if they can have like, some kind of seat of honor in heaven. They're schemers. And the reality is that a lot of us are like the disciples. It may be what brought you here tonight. We want to be spiritually great. And so you're like, okay, i want to change. I'm going to get serious about my faith. I'm going to, get, I'm going to, I'm going to try to grow. I'm going to stop doing all the stuff I'm doing. I'm going to go to RUF tonight. I'm going to change. But I, I want you to consider um, what spiritual greatness actually is according to Jesus. Um, if you want to know what you think spiritual greatness is, one way, one clue is to think about what is it that makes you feel spiritually less than? Like when you look at your own spiritual life, if you consider you're like, man, if I, if I was that way or if I did that thing, then I would, feel, I would feel better about my faith. So what is it that makes you feel spiritually less than? One thing that I've observed in my own life and in y'all's lives as I've, as I've taught to you is not having answers. If we don't have answers to things, we feel like, I can't, you know, I can't tell someone about Jesus. They're going to ask me some like, hard question, and I'm going to feel like an idiot, and I'm, I'm not mature enough in my faith yet to have those kind of conversations. You know what I'm talking about? Those kind, of, those kind of things that we think and say. Well, I want you to consider a story that happens just like a day before this one. In the Gospels, It's also in Mark chapter 9. Jesus walks up on his disciples, and they're having an argument about which, who has the right answer. They're having an argument with these scribes who would have been like established religious teachers of the day. And they're having this kind of philosophical argument, but in the middle of the argument is this man and his son. And Jesus walks up on it, and he asks them what's going on. And this man pipes up and he says, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So I want you to think about the scene here. You've got this father who is desperate, whose son can't speak a word to him. He wants to hear his boy talk to him. His son, he sees his son having these seizures, foaming at the mouth. And he hears that this rabbi named Jesus is in town. He's like, let's just try this out. Let's try it out. And he takes his son. And Jesus isn't there yet. He's off with Peter, James, and John doing something else. And so the other disciples are like, well, you know, we've got answers. And the problem is they don't. Because they can't figure out how to cast out this demon. And then the scribes are there too. And they start having this debate. This conversation about what is the right answer. And they're all aiming at some kind of spiritual greatness. To be the person who knows what to do in this situation. And I want you to see that in doing this, they're totally objectifying this young man who's come for help. And that's what we do when we become answer-oriented. Becoming answer-oriented is a really quick way to dehumanize somebody. Because they're no longer a person to be cared about. They're a problem to be solved. If you don't believe me, just try it, if you ever get married, to be answer-oriented. Try to be answer-oriented when your spouse shares a problem with you. Just try to fix it and be super answer-oriented, and then call me and tell me how it worked out for you. And we'll have a good laugh about it. Because that's what, not what we want in that situation. We want somebody to be kind of like what Jesus is right here, to, to be present and empathetic. Instead of getting straight to the answer, Jesus looks at this father and he asks him, what, what's it been like? He says, how long has this been happening to him? Jesus, let, Jesus knows, but he lets this father tell him what his experience has been like with his boy. Because spiritual greatness isn't immediately having all the right answers. Having answers isn't a bad thing. It's not the ultimate thing. And you, just imagine, imagine what it would be like to have a child like this. The father answers the question. From child, it's been happening since childhood. And the demon uh, has often cast my son into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He's saying, my son is suicidal. This thing comes on my son and my son tries to harm himself, and kill himself. Can you please help me? If you can do anything, please help me. He's been objectified. They're all debating about what should happen. What's the correct answer to this philosophical problem? He looks at Jesus, please, if you can do anything, would you help me? And Jesus responds. He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Here's what I want you to see. The Father, here in this story, with this weak, weak proclamation of faith. like I kind of don't believe, but I want to believe. I believe, help my unbelief. This weak proclamation of faith into a strong object of faith who can actually help Jesus is what actually makes change happen and I want you to see this, the story ends, his disciples ask him privately, why could we not cast out that demon? They want to know the answer. Like, what did we do wrong? Why could we not cast out that demon? And Jesus said to them, this, is, this, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What have they not been doing? They've been talking about all these answers. They're going to figure it out, They're debating with the scribes, hypothesizing, philosophizing about all the answers that needs to happen. And they never prayed. They never turned in humility to the one who could actually do something about it. And one person did. The father of this little boy. and He says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a tiny, weak prayer. But that tiny, weak kind of prayer is a lot closer to spiritual greatness than having the answers. Hmm. Jesus, Jesus is explained to these disciples who are arguing in Matthew 18 about what, who's the greatest. And he says, you have to be like a child. What does a child do? A child doesn't have answers. They look to their parents for all kinds of answers. Come to the trap house and hang out for 10 seconds and find out. Our kids like, don't know how to do anything. And they're always asking us to do stuff all the time. They need help. They're always asking for answers. The disciples knew this. They they knew Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. It says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. What spiritual greatness looks like is not trusting in yourself, but depending on God. And so often we think that our Christian growth is actually going to look like us becoming less dependent on him and knowing all the right answers. And That's not it. If I asked you, if you and I were getting coffee and I asked you, how do you want to grow in your faith? Think about how you answer that question. How do you want to change? What kind of faith change do you want to see in your life? How do you want to grow in your faith? And, you know, I don't know who I've asked that question to. I know I've asked that to students before. I've been asked that question before. And sometimes when I've been asked that question, I've caught even myself Caught myself saying answers like how do I want to grow my faith well I really want to start I want to start reading my bible more regularly I want to um I I need to join a men's bible study I haven't done that in a while I need to do that the question how do you want to grow in your faith the way that we answer I need to do something I start doing things. Doing things is going to make me grow in my faith. It's going to make me change. It's going to make me spiritually great. But spiritual greatness isn't it isn't primarily doing things. Listen again with the disciples. who are always they're all, they're captivated with this idea of like let's do great things. Let's be great. Who's the greatest, Jesus? Tell us. Who's the greatest? Jesus sends them out. In Luke chapter 10, he sends them out and he gives them authority to go and to spread the good news about his coming kingdom. And in Luke 10, he sends out these disciples and it says in Luke 10, they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject subject to us in your name. They're like, we did some crazy stuff. We went out there and we just used your name and the demons were subject to us. Like we could do all kinds of miracles just like you can, Jesus. And they're overjoyed by it because they've done all these great things. You know what Jesus says? It's so interesting because I think like if... If I was, like, the leader of that ministry, and, like, if I was the leader of RUF and y'all came back, like a bunch of, like, y'all came back and, like, we cast out a bunch of demons last week. I'd be, like, sick! You know, like, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. That's not what Jesus says. You know what he says? Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. They rejoiced at what they had done for God. But Jesus tells them, instead of rejoicing about what you've done for God, rejoice in what he's done for you. He's written your name in heaven. Sounds a lot like Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 when Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You hear how much God has done in that sentence? Listen to to this. Listen to how much God has done. Even as he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Do you hear who's doing all the work in that passage? Do you hear who's doing the greatness? It's all God. And he has written our names in heaven. Not because of what we've done. He was the one doing all the action. And believing that, believing that your greatness is not dependent upon what you do for him, but upon what he has done for you, that's the beginning of the path of being on, of being on the path of spiritual greatness. Um, one of our students told me about, he, he's graduated now, but he told me about his brother Cliff who um, got lost at the Texas State Fair during the Texas OU game. and This kid was like, seven years old. Maybe the worst place in Texas in time to get lost when you're a kid at like the fair in Dallas. This kid gets lost. Cliff doesn't know where to go. Um, and he finds like somebody who like looks like they're in charge of the fair, um, stuff that's happening. He tells them like, I've lost my mom and dad. I don't know where they are. He's worried. Um, and they take him to kind of like the place, I don't know, the place where they take lost children at the fair. I don't know where it is, but they take them there. And he, he gets to this desk and he walks up to the desk and he said he looked at the cliff. This little seven-year-old boy looks at the list and they had a, a, a list of a couple names of children who'd been lost that day. And he saw his name, Cliff, on the list. And that's, here's what that meant. It meant that he knew that somebody was looking for him. Somebody knew that he was lost. And so his his parents have told me the story and they said they were losing their minds looking for their son, looking all over the fairgrounds for them. Mom's crying. He's lost for like two hours. And they show up to the place where they keep lost children at the fair. I don't know what it it is. They show up to that place and Cliff is sitting there in a chair just like coloring and he's totally at ease and he's not worried at all and his mom like runs up to him and she Bear hugs him and she's crying. She's like, Cliff, how are you so calm? Were you not scared? And he said, No, I saw my name on the list and I knew you were looking for me. Knew you would come find me. Jesus says, That's what you rejoice in. You rejoice not because of the great things that you have done, but because your name is written in heaven. That's what you rejoice in, because of what God has done for you. And so God's primary aim for your sanctification, for the way that he's changing you. It's not that you would know all the right answers. It's not that you would do great things for him, but that you would trust him for the answers. That you would trust that he has done great things on your behalf. God's aim for you in, in and the, the way he is going to try to change you if you follow him is to make you less reliant on yourself and more reliant on him. And I would sum that up with one word humility. God's aim for your sanctification is humility. C.S. Lewis says, Humility is this true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Love that definition. Sometimes we think of humility just means like telling people that you stink, or just like thinking badly about yourself, being kind of an Eeyore. Being morose, that's humble. That's not humility. It's not thinking less of yourself. thinking about yourself less. And if we don't have to have all the right answers to every single problem to make ourselves feel good about it, if we don't have to do a lot of great things to convince God that we're worth being in heaven with him, do you know how much that frees you to stop worrying about yourself? We've, <laughs> if humility is thinking less of, your, or thinking of yourself less, we are not good at that. You know who I've thought about the most today? It's none of y'all, sorry. Me! i I thought about myself the most today. Who have you thought about the most today? Probably yourself. The goal of, the aim of God's sanctification is to convince us that we don't have to do that. We don't have to look out for ourselves because we actually have, if the gospel is true, if the Bible is true, you actually have a father who loves you more than you have any idea he loves you. He's demonstrated it to you by sending his son to die on a cross for you when you are his enemy. He loves us more than we could ever imagine and he is so sovereignly in control of every single thing in this world that he is more able to care for you than you ever would be yourself. That's why we don't have to be anxious. Our anxiety is so closely connected to our, our thoughts that we have to control things and make things okay. And we get anxious when we can't control things that we want to control. And the good news of the Bible And what humbles us is that God is actually the one who can control things. He's more able to, and he loves you more than you love yourself. So what true humility looks like, Jesus illustrates it to his disciples. He says, turn and become like children, or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not even talking about greatness at this point. He's like, you want to get in? Become like a child. Turn. And become like a child. The word turn is used over and over in the Old Testament to describe repentance. In the Bible, turning from our disobedience, turning from our sin, is repentance. And you've heard, if you've come to RUF, you've heard me say this lots of times. This is really important to know this. We oftentimes think that repenting is, here's the bad thing that I'm doing. I'm trusting in myself. I'm going, I'm going to turn from disobedience to obedience That is not repentance. Repentance is I'm going to turn from disobedience to Jesus where there is grace and forgiveness for a sinner like me. And that is something, by the way, you never graduate from in the Christian life. It's something that becomes our daily life, repenting over and over and over and being reminded over and over that God is gracious to sinners. You know what that does to you? Really humbles you. Because your hope is not in yourself. It's not in your resume. It's not in your grades. It's not in your exams. It's not in what internship that you get. It's not in what social club you get. It's not who you marry. It's not where you live. It's not what your salary is. Your hope is in Jesus. Because we're gonna die soon. We are. And when that happens, There is no hope in any of those things that I just listed except for the one who made you, who died for you, to redeem you, and who welcomes you to trust in him and to humble yourself and not trust in yourself. According to Jesus, I love this thought. I've read this passage so many times. I thought of this today. If what Jesus is saying is true, did you know that heaven only has childlike people in it? You know how delightful that is? (laughs) Heaven is populated only by childlike people. You can't even enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child. And I think it's, you know what? I think heaven is filled with childlike people because God, God loves childlikeness. And God himself is childlike. One of my favorite chapters of any book ever written is, um, it's in this book called Orthodoxy. It's like 120 pages. It's by this old British 19th, 20th century thinker named GK Chesterton. He was kind of a precursor to CS Lewis. If you like him, he influenced a lot of CS Lewis's thoughts. And, uh, Chesterton writes a chapter called the ethics of fairyland in the past in, in, in the book. And he basically is saying, like, "Hey, um, the modern world tells us like it's there's no such thing as like the spiritual world or the existence, and that everything can be explained away with science. But if the Bible is true, the world is actually enchanted because there's like someone who lives outside of it and made it, and it's all all this all this stuff that we're made out of is from him, and he rules over all of it. And listen to how he describes God." I thought about this today when Hank Trapp, for like the hundredth time, did his little joke, which is to open his eyes as wide as he can and raise his eyebrows. When he looks at you, he does this. He's two years old. It's hilarious. And he never stops doing it. He just does, he does it and like the joke is over. You kind of stop laughing and he keeps going like, like that. <laughs> it's hilarious. But I get tired of it. He doesn't. And this is, this is why Chesterton describes it. Because children have a bounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. You might know, Hank lifting his eyebrows big up. Children always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until the grown-up is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sunrise and every evening do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic scientific necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we are. No one no one who is not childlike will even enter the kingdom of heaven. What God's aim for us is, is that we would become humble. I look at this passage, look at verse 4 again. Never thought about this, but Jesus says, whoever humbles himself, and I've always thought of it like, whoever humbles himself like a child, but he doesn't say like a child. He actually is talking about the little boy who walks in. Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like this Child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's what spiritual greatness looks like. This child. Okay, well, we have to stop and think about, like, what did this child just do? Why is this child so humble? Do you know what the child did? The child was like standing around somewhere within an earshot of Jesus while this conversation's happening. We don't know where. But Jesus says, like, little boy, come here. And all the little boy does is he sees this group of like, I don't know, maybe intimidating looking like fisherman, tax collector, doctor, disciples, those are some of their professions, sitting around Jesus learning. And the little kid just walks past all of them. He listens to Jesus. He believes that Jesus has welcomed him. He's not worried about how he doesn't have the credentials to be in that room. He hasn't done a lot of stuff. All these guys are like casting out demons in Jesus's name. They're all doing this stuff. He's not concerned about his resume at all. You know what he does? He listens and he comes. And Jesus says, humble yourself like this child. This is it. Become like a child. That's what he wants from us. Sanctification is going to look like coming to Jesus over and over and over again and realizing that he is our hope and trusting in him, trusting in God's work for us to secure our name in heaven by by grace through faith alone in him and not because of what we've done. Consider how freeing that would be for you to stop having to worry about changing yourself but to believe that God is actually invested in changing you. We're going to talk about that more when we talk about how sanctification happens. But so what? If this is the aim of sanctification, a couple closing thoughts for you. One of the songs that we sing in RUF is a song called Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. Listen to this verse. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus. Just from sin and self to cease. That means... I can stop being so concerned about myself. I can stop being so worried about how I stand. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just from sin and self-decease, just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Sanctification. Sanctification is God making his children that he's adopted more like his son who he's begotten. Sanctification is God making his children more and more like his son, Jesus. That's what he plans to do with us. And you know what Jesus is? There's only one time in all the Bible where Jesus describes his heart. Only one time where Jesus says, let me peel back the layers and I'm going to tell you exactly what my heart is like. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Matthew eleven twenty nine, For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus, I like, come to me, I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. I'm not concerned about myself, I'm concerned about you. Jesus is the most approachable human being who's ever lived. He's gentle with you and whatever your struggle is or the thing that you're ashamed of. He wants to meet you there. And the way that he'll begin changing you in that struggle is for you to actually begin believing that he wants to be with you in it. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me from gentle and humble in heart. Someone needs to hear that. He's humble. To become like Jesus means that we become humble, to become like his son. And the reason that we become humble is because of everything we have is from him. How would the world be different Imagine with me for 1 second. I only got 4 more times with y'all so I'm going to go a little bit longer. Just imagine with me for a second how the world would be different with humble Christians and a humble church. Christians and a church who don't think less of them, who don't think less about themselves but think about themselves less. How would that change the language? of street preachers speaking to people walking past them if they spoke with humility. they probably speak a lot less about other people's sin and a lot more about their own sin. How would that change the way that the church seeks to care for the agenda of people who are in need rather than push its own agenda for power and for influence? Because they don't have to think and worry about themselves. Instead, they can think and consider the needs of others. What would it mean? What, what would it look like if the church preached humility? What would it look like for people who sit in church like the young man in Atlanta who sat in church and called himself a Christian and then and went and, as he thought, enacted judgment upon people who were causing him Temptation if he heard humility preached to him and embodied humility, he would see that all people are made in God's image, no matter their race or their ethnicity or their gender. They're all image bearers of God. That He is no better than them. That he's just as in need of a savior as they are because he's just as sinful. How would the world look different If Christian marriages were humble, how would your family look different? If you'd seen humility in your parents' marriages, your father not being mostly concerned with his own interests and his own career and his own purchases and his own success and his own schedule, your mom not being most concerned with looking a certain way or having a certain kind of brand for her family or having kids who do the certain kind of things that she wants and get into the certain kind of places that she wants them to get into and date the certain kind of people that she wants them to date, but instead we're we're concerned about the needs of their family. How would your marriage look if you ever get married? If you went into a humble marriage to a humble person. Are you looking for that? Are you looking for somebody who's humble to marry? Someone who's been freed from thinking about themselves all the time and instead, because Jesus holds them secure in his arms, they're freed to instead think about the needs of others? You go into a room and think about, like, who's humble here? I want to get to know. Trust me, when they're 80, you're going to want humility. You will. The reason that we that we preach humility, that we want to be humble, is because it's who Jesus is. And so I'll just close by reading this. this I love this passage. I encourage any of y'all to memorize it. I think I probably should. Because I need to hear this. Philippians 2, 3 through eleven. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How do we do that? How do we aim at that? Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's how you do it. Have this this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. The humble will be exalted and the proud will be laid low. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would um, that you would change our hearts to be more like yours. Um, That you would make us a people. um, That you would make this a ministry that aims for humility. Um, That that glory is not in our own work, but in the work that you've done for us that, um, that seeks to be like children and depend on you. And we pray that you would make us more and more like that and that you would do that with your church, um, in America and in this world. And we pray that you would do all this for your glory. And it's in Jesus name we pray. Amen.